I love those kind of images where you can make something more, that you can make a fiction about what's going on in that image. And I think if you look at most really good photography, there's something you can say about it, some story you can put together. I, I really like this. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we are going on both sides of the fence. Today we are talking about stuff that is near and dear to the heart of every photographer out there, not only taking pictures, but galleries and the places to display our work for fame to come and find us. We are talking with Tom O'Connor. And, and got to say right here at the beginning, folks, go to the website. Tom is spelled with an H. T-H-O-M, and then it's TomO'ConnorPhotography.com, and no apostrophe between the O and the C in O'Connor. T-H-O-M-O-C-O-N-N-O-R-Photography.com. You're going to find one of the most interesting, diverse, and, and pleasant websites out there. Tom, welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you, Scott. It's uh, really very nice that you've invited me. And, and thank you for saying nice things about my website. And I will say that's pretty much my work over the years. I probably 10 years ago or more said, oh, you need a website. And nobody wanted to make one for me. So I basically did it myself. So now, and I'm going to say like everyone else in photography, oh, I'd like to update my website a little. It needs this, <laughs> it needs that. But uh, it's, in, it's looking good. And thank you for the uh, plug for the website. And I think there's probably a career field out there for a professional website updater, somebody who just hires themselves out to do that for somebody. But Tom, your work has, I mean, it's been in Business Week, US Today, New York Magazine, Parade, Rolling Stone, uh, New York Times, Reader, I mean, Chicago Tribune, Reader's Digest, it's been everywhere. And I mean, you are an undergraduate and graduate level teacher. You've been working at this for more than five decades, according to your website. So I mean, five decades, you, you started when you were seven. How did you get into this thing? I was actually nine when I started, I believe. <laughs> uh, yes, I see that you did look at my uh, about page. Uh, that's great. Uh, I will say it's my first professional job as a photographer it was 1959. Queen Elizabeth and her husband, Prince Philip, were opening the St. Lawrence Seaway. And they came over on the Royal Yacht Britannia and had a tour of Canada. They made one stop in the United States, which was Chicago. And I was a Chicago native. So I'm at that age, uh, I'm probably 15, something like that. And I, I had a Brownie Hawkeye camera, you know, the ones that were this uh, Bakelite, this black Bakelite mm -hmm. camera, really well designed and had a little strap on the top so you could carry it. 
and it used uh, 620 roll film, if I remember correctly. <laughs> so I said to myself, well, I'm going to go down to Grant Park. You know, it's the waterfront just off the loop in Chicago. I'm going to take some pictures of the Queen. And I had in my mind this idea that, oh, I'm going to have these really swell photographs of the Queen and the Prince coming off the, uh, not the yacht, but the tender that got them to the harbor. Mm-hmm. Well, there was me, and there were about two million, according to the Chicago <laughs> Tribune, two million other people who were standing in Grant Park. So I was perhaps eight or ten blocks away. <laughs> way, way off in the distance, I yeah. could see this little speck, which I think was the queen. So I hoisted up my brownie hawkeye and put it over my head. It had that reflex viewer, you know, and I put it over my head, looked through the viewer and shot a whole roll of film. That was my first professional assignment. Now, the film had to be processed. There was a there was actually a I believe it was a portrait studio that would process this film. Took about a week. I got it back. And it was, as you would expect, backs of the heads of two million Mm -hmm. Chicagoans. Mm -hmm. And they, way, way off in the distance, something that looked like it might have been a royal couple. That was my first photography of any uh, substance, I think. Do you you still have that picture somewhere? Do you have a print? It's probably sitting in a box... (laughs) (laughs) of memorabilia, and I have many. I'd love to find it, but it's probably buried under 4,000 other things. But I don't, I never threw any of that out if I could avoid it. I will say my mother used to throw things out, which ticked me off enormously, but I think those prints survive somewhere. Be really great to find them. Oh, yes, it would. I started to um, photograph for the uh, high school newspaper. When I got to college, I photographed for both the newspaper and the yearbook. And at some point after a couple of years, the college publicity department asked me, oh, could you do some photographs for us and we'll pay you? Oh my gosh, that was a big deal. I said, sure, did some photography for them. And I was already hooked as a a photographer, but getting paid for it was like a real big bonus. Mm -hmm. Um, When I got out of college, I, by the way, I was a philosophy major in college, which doesn't prepare you for much other than more philosophy. I needed a job and I had a little portfolio of work and there was a chain of newspapers in Chicago at the time called uh, Learner Newspapers. And they had these weekly editions for about 40 areas of the city and the suburbs. I took my little portfolio of black and white prints there They were desperate to have somebody to take a photograph. In fact, if I remember correctly, the editor said, can you shoot something for us today? And I said, sure. That was kind of a start for me as a, I wouldn't call it photojournalism, but it was really good news photography. It was a great opportunity for me to just shoot whatever I wanted, all they really what they wanted was an in-focus picture and spell the names correctly on the IDs. 
And I would go from one job to another. I would shoot, uh, you know, the 100th anniversary uh, or the 100th birthday, let us say, of uh, the little old lady. I would shoot the twins that had just been born. I would shoot the local high school basketball games, football games, groundbreaking. Occasionally did politics, not too often. And I had this opportunity to have one page a week that I created. It was a photography page. It had, um, oh my. T- it had text. It had photographs. I did, I did my own assigning. I shot the photos. I laid out the page. It was such a terrific opportunity. And it was great for the editors because they thought, eh, that's one less page we have to worry about. So <laughs> it, was a, it was a terrific experience for me. And I still, I have photographs from that period. I have a number of them. I still really like 50 years later, probably now. What kind of assignments were you giving yourself? It was sometimes it was a little desperate. Um, one hot July, I went out and photographed kids eating ice cream cones. And the whole thing was kids eating drippy ice cream cones. But if I had a little time to think about it, I did one really good page that there was a, there was a craftsman, a local craftsman who, who made violins. And I photographed him for a couple of days making a violin and uh, really say, I will say very nice work if I if I will say so I noticed that in Chicago people tended to move on June 1st seemed to be the moving day so I assigned myself this project of photographing a number of people who were moving during the course of the day and I just I drove around the north side of Chicago found people early in the morning who were loading up trailers and vans and asked them if I could shoot them as they moved. Sure. And I followed a number of people. I went back and forth between various people and did a whole page of uh, people moving and the, the chaos that is involved with moving. And also there's a certain sense of loss when you move from one place to another or melancholia maybe. And uh, so I had a really nice series of pieces of that. I did gymnasts practicing for regional competitions. I believe I did one. There was this Battle of the Bands event that was high school marching bands from all over the state would come (laughs) to um, Niles High School in, in the summer, in the middle of the summer. I photographed that kind of thing. I had It was a great opportunity to, to shoot a number of things that – you know, normally you would not get a chance to do. Oh, man, I hope I'm not in your, your Battle of the Bands pictures because I, I was a drummer in my high school, north, north side of Chicago, uh, high school marching band. So <laughs> I will tell you the thing about that I liked about the Battle of the Bands, I got to go on the field and walk around as they were performing and being in the middle of these bands with you know 12 drums and 40 trumpets going it was it was quite an exciting thing i mean it was stirring i think the word is stirring uh, i mm-hmm. love that kind of thing when i was shooting this work oftentimes i would be on the same assignment with photographers from the daily newspapers in chicago and we had three of them at the time the chicago tribune the Chicago Sun-Times, and the Chicago Daily News. 
And they all had really good photographers. In fact, the Chicago Sun-Times had John H. White was uh, one of a number of terrific photographers. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his photography. And I would oftentimes be in the same pack of photographers at some event. And I felt both competitive and overmatched. I I just thought, (laughs) there's no way Mm -hmm. I'm going to be like these guys. It took a long time to get over that. I will say that I had Nike, everybody had to use Nikon cameras. If you were a photojournalist, that's pretty much what you used. And I bought a couple of new Nikon cameras. And in order to look more professional, these were black, the black enamel cameras. I sanded off the corners of the black enamel camera so you could see the brass, so I'd look more professional. <laughs> oh, I, I love the old adage, especially among climbers, never trust anybody with new equipment. Um, exactly. So they, they, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I love the photojournalism stories, and I'm looking at the portfolios on your website, and, and certainly the, the photojournalism and the street photography, you know, are part of the worlds that you're working in. But but you're identifying more along thematic lines with your portfolios here. So, you know, do do you, do you not want to be pitching? Oh, he's a street photographer. He's a journalist. How how do you go about defining your work these days? Well. Okay, I would say back in the day, I was I would just call myself a photographer, and I I in fact I never I always thought that calling myself a photojournalist was a bit too uppity, you know, it was just too much. A photographer was fine. As time went on, and I left Chicago, I, I had some friends who bought a newspaper in Alaska, and I went up there and worked for them as a photographer, and I taught some photography for the University of Alaska, and I still thought of myself as a photographer. I was in Chicago back again, and then I had met a very nice lady who lived in New York, and I came to visit her, and I said, well, I don't want to stay too long, and that was probably 50 years ago, (laughs) and I'm still here, and I'm still here with a very nice lady. And so I'm, I'm now a photographer in New York, which was a very scary proposition. I had at that point a fairly decent portfolio of black and white work, but, you know, there was me and 4,000 other aspiring photographers all going to the same places. I'm not even sure how this started. I was at a party sometime at some point, and there was a guy there, and he, we were both at the, the cheese log, let us say, and he said, so what do you do? And I said, I'm a photographer. And he said, oh, I'm a photographer. Where do you work? And I said, well, I'm kind of freelancing at the moment. He said, oh, I work at the New York Times, and sometimes we use freelancers, if you'd be interested. And he gave me his card. And I thought, well, this will never happen. And uh, one thing led to another. I called him. I, I showed him my portfolio. He said, okay, we'll put you on the Rolodex. Remember the Rolodex? Oh, my yep, God. Yep, yep, He or somebody at the photography assignment desk would give me a call. Can you get down to the World Trade Center? There's uh, something going on in, in 40 minutes. And I'd say, sure. It didn't matter where it was or what it was. Yep. I would say sure <laughs> to it. I, of course I can. <laughs> yep, yep. I kept, I had a 
I had a beeper, if you can remember beepers. Mm-hmm. I had a beeper and I had an answering service and I had a set of clean clothes. And so I was ready to go at any hour of the day or night. And I did a lot of really interesting work for the New York Times. Did a lot of home page uh, images. I did some personality photographs. Very occasionally, I think I had two pieces of mine that appeared on the front page below the fold, but nevertheless, the front page of the New York Times. And that led to somebody contacting me from the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I guess it was because they saw my photo credit in the New York Times. Hey, we have a bureau in New York and uh, we could use a photographer once in a while. Great. And that was a great job for me, too, because I'd get to go to these um, really interesting interviews with actors and writers. And, you know, I photographed Dan Rather in his office at CBS. I photographed Dick Clark in his uh, office at ABC at the time. It was a it was really nice thing to do. And I didn't even realize what a great thing it was. I would just say, oh, it's just a job and I'm making a yep. few bucks. Yep. If we have a, a synopsis of my career, it's one thing leading to another. Somebody saw a piece of my work from Business Week, called me up and said, hey, can you do something for us? Yes. Started to work for Business Week. And this was when it was all black and white. We had yet to convert uh, magazines to color. We're talking, you know, mid to late 70s. Business Week then led to one of their art directors moving on to a magazine. He said, Hey, I'm at this magazine. It's called PC Magazine, and it's about computers. We need somebody to photograph some some screens, actually. That was the first thing. Can you photograph screens? And once again, I said, sure, I can, whatever it is, I can do it. And uh, the, the answer is always yes. <laughs> absolutely. And so I ended up working for PC Magazine for, I would say, close to 20 years. In fact, I used to go in, when I first started working for them, they would set up conference room and bring in all these computers. And these were big, ugly, early model computers. I would photograph them all in the conference room. I'd bring all my gear in, lights and seamless and all that stuff. At some point I said, hey, you know, if there was a place here where I could store my gear, it would be more efficient. So they found me a big room in at One Park Avenue, which is where they were located. And I kind of moved in and made it a studio. And for 20 years, I photographed probably more computers than any other person on the planet, I would say. And it was a great, it was another great opportunity for me. And here's the thing, I was never a staff person at any of these jobs, which I always thought was an advantage because it allowed me to do other photography, which I did. But if you look at my website, there there's probably one whole area that's called, maybe it's called Tabletop Studio or something. That's a lot of hardware and stuff that got done, as you might imagine, on a tabletop over a period of 20 years. Now, at that point, PC Magazine started to lose pages, printed pages, and became a web magazine for the most part. And somebody in their 
bean counting department said, you know, we're paying this guy a lot of money to take photographs, but all we care about is to have something on the web. They decided to use interns with point-and-shoot cameras, so, <laughs> which, which kind of ended ended my association with PC Magazine. At first, I thought it was an awful thing, but then I, after I had left, I realized there were other things to do, and I'd really um, spent way too much time photographing computers. I had a friend who had been an art director at PC, then he went to... Long Island University, became a professor of design. At one point, he said to me, uh, do you know Photoshop? And I said, yeah. Can you teach Photoshop? And I said, sure, <laughs> mm-hmm. as usual. So he gave me, he said, I need somebody to teach Photoshop. And uh, that was the beginning of a kind of a teaching career that uh, went on for about seven or eight years. I got to a point where I was in charge of their photography program. I taught undergraduates. I taught, I advised graduates. We had digital. We had darkroom. That was another great opportunity for me. And uh, I was very pleased with that. So that brings us up to mm, the point where, ah, Soho Photo. I wanted to be a member. I had been... Okay. Well, wait, 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 wait. Before we switch over to the, before we switch over to the gallery, I, w- I want to. I still want to ask you a couple of questions about sure. your own work here, because it, I'm looking. You talked about the tabletop studio, which is ex- exactly what the name implies, and th- there's just fantastic product photography there. Oh, thank but you. But a couple, a, a couple of the other portfolios in, intrigue me for reasons. Uh, and I, I want to talk about aesthetics here. I want to talk about composition no, a little bit. Yeah. If we begin with the portfolio that you call Empty City, yes. which is ar- it, it's architectural photography, it's exteriors, this kind of stuff. And I've always been interested in the question with architectural photography, and is this an extraordinary picture or is this an ordinary picture of an extraordinary facade? If I walk into the Louvre and I take a picture of, of a great statue, you know, I didn't make the statue. You know, I, I shouldn't claim anything is tremendously artistic about a snapshot of somebody else's genius. What in terms of composition and, and in terms of deciding what makes architectural and especially urban architectural photography significant because i'm looking at your work and, and i'm going to call out a couple of them here in a minute but what what's 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 good about architectural work well here's the thing the work that you call architectural i have to give a lot of credit to lower manhattan the buildings are extraordinary in in lower manhattan and so half of the the beauty of that work to me was oh these are really terrifically designed buildings some of them new some of them old very ornate in some cases you you make a good point about if you take a photograph of another piece of work uh, a, a sculpture a a building. And I've always said that to students, you get some of the credit, but the artist gets a lot of the credit too. My contribution to those images, the empty city images, was my ability to see these buildings in very interesting light and to frame them in such a way to emphasize the light and to 
add drama to what's, what is already kind of a dramatic situation. And the colors, I think the colors in those photographs, and that seems to be a signature with me too, is that my colors are usually uh, quite dramatic. There's a picture in here, and, and folks, I'm going to try and describe it to you a little bit. It's a picture, and this is in the, the uh, Empty City portfolio, of two windows. One is sort of a complete half dome. The other one's got an arc on the top, but then straight sides. There are some faux pillars uh, in there. It's a stone, a stone building. And there's two little red hearts hanging yes. up uh, in, in one of the windows uh, with some plants. And I'm looking at this picture and, and I'm thinking, you know, you know, if somebody had to have tapped you on the shoulder and say, oh, look over this way, because the <laughs> light, the, 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 sh the shadow, 30 seconds before or after, the shadow was not there. That's right. Uh, and, and you caught it just on this one pillar. And the more I keep looking at this picture, you know, there's the dentals in, in the cornice work. There's the red brick right up there at the very top. There are so many layers here. Do you remember the story of, of, of this picture? Do you remember? You know, yes. Was this just a, a, an oh, my God moment or what? Okay. And in fact, I'm bringing it up on my computer now to refresh my memory. Ah, yes. Empty city. These photographs were all made during the dead of winter. I would be the only really? person out on the street. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a point in Manhattan, particularly at uh, around the, uh, December 21st in that period, when the light, particularly in the morning, is, is quite dramatic. And I'm the only one on the street. So they were made at a time when I was really cold, but I was alone on the streets. And I'm going, I'm walking along Nobody pointed this out to me, and maybe that's just because I pay a lot of attention on the street. But I looked at that and I thought, what a, what a wonderful little spot that is in what normally would be just a facade, kind of a, a hard facade to have these two little red hearts. And as you say, a few minutes later, one way or another, it would not have been. Now, here's the thing that I did finally learn after many years. Don't wait shoot it now. You can always try again later. But I, I remember when I first started photographing, I thought, oh, you know what would be better if I just wait another 10 minutes? No, you got to do it now. You can always do it later. But I would have missed that moment where everything, all those elements came together. And I have to thank the solar system for, for putting all those pieces <laughs> together. You know, I, I'm looking at shot and, and you talk about shoot it now. One of my favorite quotes, you know, and that applies for, to so many things, comes from a writer named Frank Conroy. And he says, sometimes the light bulb will appear above your head, but it may be years before it turns on. In other words... <laughs> Yeah, I know this is important, and I have no idea why. And 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 exactly. I think that ought to be a mantra for every street photographer out there. You know, if there's anything, anything at all that's engaging, you know, press the shutter release. But if you look at this picture, just you know, you you've got the dark you know window on the left, sort of lifeless. You got a shade, you know, partially drawn. On the one on the right, you've got its opposite. You've got you know complete contrast. You've got plants. You've got hearts. You've got sunlight. You talk about drama and color. Th this is the, the definition of what you were just talking about there. Oh, thank you. I, I'm going to say that uh, this photograph, now that we're talking about it, is, I think, the type of photograph that I particularly like to make because what this does for me is it offers the opportunity to 
make up a story about who's in that office. Why is that office on the right so human and the one on the left mm -hmm. has nothing? And I love those kind of images where you can make something more, that you can make a fiction about what's going on in that image. And I think if you look at most really good photography, there's something you can say about it, some story you can put together. I, I really like those kind of images. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. We've talked about this in other circumstances. Do you believe that photography, I mean, certainly it can be narrative. Do you think it should be? Well, I think there are some cases where it really needs to be narrative. I have a portfolio, and I believe that's uh, in this thing uh, called The Project, if it's still yes. there. Yes, it is there. Um, that's me. Uh, I, I had a little experience. We can talk about that. Okay, so The Project is narrative for sure. Empty mm -hmm. City is not narrative. Empty City to me is fiction. It's it's just loveliness and it's it's the kind of thing where you can make your own stories about it. And if you look at other portfolios that I offer on that on my site, there are a number of them that are similar to that. I did want to say that I don't consider myself a street photographer. You know, if you think about what a, who, who is a street photographer, usually it's somebody whose work shows that they were standing right there in front of somebody and stuck their camera in that person's <laughs> face or, or close to it. If you look at my work, I do images on the street, that's for sure, but it's not necessarily street photography. It's more about life on the street, maybe. So I, I don't consider myself a street, and there are a lot of terrific street photographers. I don't think I'm one of them. I just think okay. that I tell these stories that are really interesting. Absolutely. Going through all of these portfolios, uh, especially with the ones that we've been talking about, but also the, what is it called here? The something about the light portfolio. So many of us were walking along and suddenly there's just a cool light on something. And, you know, you, we arrest ourselves, we stand there, we, you know, we get the shot. It, it's sort of you know, the, the cool factor of being a photographer is, is finding those interesting you know, lightscapes. And, and I, love the, I love the fact that you put them all together in a portfolio here. So the, the, the work is extraordinary. The work is, is impressive and inspiring, at least, at least from my point of view. But there is the other side of your career as well, where you are the president of the Soho Gallery. This is one of, of certainly New York's, if, if not the nation's, most interesting, unusual, and, and successful galleries. Oh, um, thank you. It, um, it, it is, and it's, it's completely unusual, um, or, you know, if not unique, in that it is member-driven. And, yeah. and, and so it, for people that don't know the, the Soho Gallery, it, you know, the web, their website is just sohophoto.com. 
according to the website, founded in 1971 by New York Times photographers. But I don't think it was probably as easy yes. as, you know, the old, I, I don't think they were just sitting around and saying, hey, what do you think we start a gallery? Yeah, I'm, I'm not doing anything at four. Tell me about the genesis and, 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 and you know, where this gallery came from. Okay. Now, th- yes, you are absolutely right. It was not as easy as um, those movies with Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney where they said, let's do a show yeah. in the Yeah, hey barn. kids, let's put on a you show, know, yeah. This- this was much more difficult. In 1971, a number of photographers in New York, New York uh, said, we, would l- we really need a place to show our work. And they included New York Times photographer Lee Romero, Sonia Katchian, who was the first, uh, one of the first uh, women photographers hired by the New York Post. And Harvey Stein was one of the founders, excellent photographer, David Chalk, Catherine Orsillo was there, Jill Friedman. So this group of photographers uh, said, we need a place. Let's get together and see what we can come up with. They found a place on Prince Street in lower Manhattan, which was in Soho, the Soho district, Opened the place up, and I I wasn't there at the time. This is all handed to me by other people. It was a second-floor walk-up, and they immediately started to have guest speakers and guest exhibitions plus member exhibitions. So in the first few years as Soho Photo, there was images by um, Edward Steichen and Ansel Adams, Don McCullen, the famous uh, British photographer, Minor White was there, uh, Mark Jury, a lot of a lot of terrific guest artists, plus the work of not just the founders but other members of the gallery. It became very became very successful to the point where I have a note that in December of 1973. 57 members of Soho Photo got together and hung 400 images in for one show. Oh, uh, my. I, I would love to have seen, I don't know that there's any existing photographs, 400 images. Um, so over the years, it became very popular very quickly, and I think it filled a need to have not just the camera club idea where you go and sit and talk about things, but it, it, it filled the need to have really terrific work by members and by guests that just brought the whole level of appreciation of photography to a higher level. It stayed at um, Prince Street for a number of years. At some point, it, apparently it moved for a short period of time to 13th Street, which would have meant it was out of Soho entirely. Then, just before 1980, they found this location at 15 White Street. And this became like a, a passion that it had. We have to have that location. We have to make it into a gallery. So the report was that they made the lease. And it was a giant space that had 20-foot ceilings or maybe 22-foot ceilings, very open space, and not a lot of windows so that you had a lot of wall space to put to hang photographs. The story was that it had been recently used as a place to sell live poultry. Now, I don't know if that <laughs> if that's just apocryphal, but nevertheless, it took, so the report was that it took them five months to clean it up 
and to build a balcony area. And there were 60 volunteers who were members of the gallery who worked for five months to make this into a really terrific space to show art. And they opened that gallery in January of 1980. And we're still there 40 years later, the same space, the same building. And so we're celebrating a little a little behind the times. We're celebrating our 50th anniversary plus one year. We're going to start the celebration in January. The plus one was because we were closed for most of the pandemic period. And so we didn't have a celebration. So, Tom, let let me play devil's advocate for just a second. Now that the the web is in all of our cell phones and I can sit down with an iPad or or whatever and have, you know, beautiful access to, you know, to nicely backlit images, why is wall space still so important? Well, that's... Really, uh, an excellent question. We have certain members of the gallery who will say only work on the walls matters. And why is that? Well, because there's a connection that you make as a viewer to work on the walls. There's there's a physical presence. There's a three-dimensional quality about it. And it's not backlit as, as it is on, yep. on a website. You know, it's it's there, it's right in front of you. And if you share that experience, if there are four people standing there all looking at the same gallery full of work, it's a shared experience that is unique. And I agree that the work on the walls is the best. And in fact, Frames Magazine, I, I love your your slogan, if we can call it that, the um, mm-hmm. excellent photography belongs on paper. Belongs on paper. I, uh, yep. That's a great that's a great slogan. Okay, but we are in this period now which the pandemic pushed us into where we particularly at Soho Photo, we ended up closing the gallery for about 10 months. And in fact, we had a retrospective show of Jill Friedman, the wonderful photographer who did uh, cops and firehouses and Resurrection City, black and white photographer, terrific work. She had passed on in December of of, uh, 2019. And we did a, a memorial show of hers that opened the week that COVID became a household word. So we had an opening night. I remember this opening night. We had we must have had 120 people there, friends of Jill Friedman and gallery members and just people who wanted to see her work. Beautiful. We had 48 images, black and white, silver gelatin prints. They're beautiful after 40 or more years. And you come and you stand there and you look at them and you are you're sucked in, you're taken away to this location, to this place, you want to be part of it. That's hard to do on uh, on the web, I will say that. So we're there, we're there for this opening. And we made some jokes, I remember standing there that evening and saying, oh, should we shake hands or maybe not? We were kind of joking about, the, about right. you know, this thing. Two days later, the uh, Metropolitan Museum said, we're closing. And then shortly in that one day on Thursday, New York went from open to closed, and we closed the gallery with Jill's work still on the walls, and it 
it hung there for about six months, probably. We would occasionally go and make sure it was fine. And we didn't want to do yep. anything with yep. it. We thought, well, maybe we'll have, you know, we'll have part two of this exhibition at some point. It never happened. So the pandemic pushed us to become much more web-oriented with mm -hmm. uh, all of our work. You know, it, it, we had two volunteers, everybody in the gallery, every piece of work in the gallery is done by a volunteer. We had two very good volunteers who kept up the website, and it would have, you know, schedules of events, and we'd have images from some shows. Not everything was on the site, but it was fine. Then we had the pandemic and we realized the only way we're going to communicate with our audience is via the web. We now have eight people in our web group and they're all terrific and they work very hard. And the website has improved enormously since we uh, started to push it forward. Okay, so we still want to continue with the website, but yes, we want you to come back to the gallery and see the work in person because there's nothing quite like that. To see the work as the photographer presents it with the texture of the paper and the shades, you never get the same shades on the web that you get, Those the delicate balance that you get when you see a fine print, color or black and white. So you have to come back to the gallery. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And in, in much the same way that watching a movie on Netflix is nothing like watching a movie with 200 other people in, in a theater, and, and especially with photography, you know, all the photographs that I look at online seem to be exactly the same size, which just happens to be the size of my iPad. <laughs> um, so, you it's know, not it, a coincidence. It, 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 you know, it's amazing how that works out. And some images, you know, as, as we all know, are meant to be minuscule. Some images are meant to fill a wall. But the community of art consumers, you know, when you're putting shows together, when you're thinking of yourself as a, um, as a cooperative, not just a camera club, but a real sort of art savvy you know, group of, of uh, practitioners, what is the benefit of community observation, community, you know, reception? To a photographer? Well, I, I speak from having had many shows over the years, and I just had a show at Soho Photo, and as a member of the co-op, you need to sit during your show a couple of days a month. And I'm sitting there one day and people are coming in and they look at the work on my wall. Now, some people walk in. I had one gentleman who came in, walked past as though he was trying to get to the next block, walked past my work, didn't even look at it, really. Well, that kind of ticked me off, but I understand it didn't appeal to him. And then here was the here was the payoff for me. Then I had a group of about four people who came in. Not only did they stand there and look at the work, they talked to each other about the work. And then they said, one of them came over and said, oh, do you know the photographer? I said, well, yes, that's me, actually. Oh, we had such a great, we had a great conversation. It went on for about 25 minutes. And I... That for me was a payoff. That was like, ah, 
I told you what I was doing. You told me what you thought. You enjoyed some of it. Some of it you thought, well, maybe we, we could do something a little different there. It was just a wonderful interaction with people who are interested in, in uh, work and interested in the feeling that photography gives them. And that's, that's a big payoff. And that's really part of why you have a community, why you actually open the doors. So, so talk, talk to me about curation then. I mean, you can put a picture of your cat up on, on Instagram and get 10 times as, ma- as, as many likes as people are going to see something in, in, in a serious gallery. Tell me about how you get on the wall. I mean, you know, what, what does work at the Soho Photo Gallery, you know, what, what kind of benchmark is it setting? How, how do you get to be there? Okay. Well, and let me just make it clear that Soho Photo is a members-run organization. It's a cooperative. There are a number of really terrific galleries in New York that are – commercial is not the correct word, but they are interested in representing a small number of photographers. And in that representation, they will do their best to sell the work and usually it's the owner or manager of that gallery who will decide what work goes up on the walls. Soho Photo works entirely differently. And in my experience with other galleries, it's, it's also kind of unique. Here's what happens. If you are a member of Soho Photo and you have done a, a project that you think merits some space on the walls, you need to present your final project to the members of the gallery. And that means prints in the size and the framing that you intend to show them on the walls, edited in sequence and in number the way you want them edited. You need to have a good state, a good strong statement. You present all your work to the Portfolio Review Committee, which is actually, if you are a member of photo of Soho Photo, you are also a member of the Portfolio Review Committee. There's no, the committee is just all of us. In a typical Saturday, we, we would meet once a, a month on a Saturday. You might have 30 or more members of the gallery arrayed in folding chairs, looking at the portfolio of a member who wants to have a show. And the work is all arrayed on easels, and we, we get to look at it close up. We, we get to discuss it among ourselves. The uh, member who's asking for the show is not there to hear the good or the bad, but their notes are taken, <laughs> and they will get, they'll get a full report after the, um, after the PRC meeting. So we look at the work. Is it something new and interesting? Is it something we haven't seen before? Technically, how does it work? The conversation might range all over the place. It might be, uh, it doesn't really meet the requirements of the gallery in that there's too many pieces or they're poorly edited, or they might be well edited, they might be well presented. Does it actually reflect the statement that you have given to us to, concerning the work. And sometimes that's a sticking point. Okay, we will talk about it. And typically, the, the group might spend 15 minutes, a half hour, sometimes 45 minutes debating the pros and cons of this work. Does it 
meet the requirements and is it worthy of being put on the walls at Soho Photo? There are some galleries that one might, you might describe it as a, like a vanity gallery, where if you're willing to, to pay a few bucks, you can put your work on the wall. So if you had 12 cat pictures and were willing to pay a hundred bucks, you could put it on, on the walls. That yep. does not yep. happen at Soho Photo. It's in fact, it's one of the the strongest critique environments that I've been exposed to, and I did a lot of them when I was teaching, very knowledgeable people talking very intelligently about the work and the structure and the eye that is involved in colors. Yes, colors, shadows, black. How's the printing? What kind? It, it really is quite extraordinary. I would love to be part of that conversation. I would love to hear some of those. Well, we'll have to do one. You can you can come or you can come by uh, <laughs> by by electronic means. It's it's a great opportunity to both talk about work at hand and also broaden your experience with work. I mean, I well, I think almost every one of the PRCs that I've been to in the last 8 years, something has been said that I hadn't thought about. Like, oh, that's really, I had never thought this about this particular work or why this helps or why this doesn't help. So if you get 30 people talking about it, it's just really extraordinary what kind of information gets passed back and forth. At the end, it's a very democratic process. Whoever the person in charge of the PRC will say, should it be a show or not? It'll be a show of hands and the majority rules. And you don't always get a show. I myself, I think I've had six or seven shows in the last few years at Soho Photo, which is a lot, but I've gotten rejected a couple times too. So at the end of the process, two members of the of the uh, gallery will come out and meet with you as the uh, person who's asking for the show. If they're smiling, you know you're good. If they're less than smiling, then we're going to have some words. <laughs> oh man! Congratulations, uh, you've got a show, and here's why we here's why we like it. Or, well, it it's not a show, but and then but, here's yeah. what I find very constructive is they will say it's it doesn't have the cohesion that we think it has, or there could be a number of reasons why it doesn't work. I found that. Even though I love hearing congratulations, I also found that on those times when I was when the work was not accepted for a show, I learned something, and I and I went away and redid it. Maybe I re-edited. I might have made in one case, I made the entire show fewer images but larger. Another time, I changed the framing, and you can come back. You can come back and say, "Well, this is what." want to give it a second try. This is unusual I think in in most galleries. And as I say if you if you if it's a a gallery where you are represented you get guidance but you are you're kind of at their mercy I guess of the uh, whoever owns the gallery. But that's a thing that's a different process entirely. You there's much more money involved. That's the other thing we don't we haven't mentioned is that yeah, we love to sell our work and we just we had a show the the show that just came down a new member of the gallery I believe sold three pieces which was 
terrific right off the bat to sell three pieces. That doesn't happen. Sometimes there'll be seven shows up for a month and not a piece gets sold. And then sometimes, oh, I sold two, you sold three. Well, you know, Tom, we're running out of time here. One of the things that I want to ask you, though, just just as, as a closing bit of, bit of future forecasting, during the pandemic, we all got used to another way of behaving. Yes. Um, and I can see people coming out of the pandemic saying, you know, I don't really need to go to a gallery anymore. I'm, you know, and another people saying, oh, hell, I'm getting to the gal. I mean, I, I, I'm going to celebrate what we, what we got taken away from us. Yes. In, in the long term, you know, like the stock market or anything else, in, in the long term, galleries are going to be fantastic. Do you think for the next year, galleries are going to do well, or do you think it's going to be a challenge to get people back out? Here's what we have discovered. We were closed for 10 months. We reopened in December of this past year. The first month, there was one Sunday, I think we had one person who came to the gallery. And one additional day, oh, we're really lucky we had three people come to the gallery. This past weekend, we had Friday, I believe we had 28 people. On Saturday, we had a similar number. I'm not sure about Sunday. People are coming back to the galleries, not just us, but I believe they, they feel this intense need to connect physically with work. Yes, they will go to the website. And we have members, you know, we do a lot of Zooming of our members. We have members in California and we have somebody in Brazil. We have a number of members. Okay, that's part of it. But they feel the need to come back to the galleries. And I think uh, from what I see of Lower Manhattan, galleries are just suddenly become very popular again. And I'm I'm feeling very optimistic about the, le- the next year for all of the uh, galleries that have been so closed for so long. People want to come back. Very cool. Well, to everybody listening, if you're in Manhattan, make a beeline to the Soho Photo Gallery. It, it, it is an experience that you will treasure for a long time. Tom, well, thank, thank you. you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Oh, I'm glad we had it. Thank you for asking me. And I would say, yes, come and visit us both in the gallery and on SohoPhoto.com. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.